And if you've got a Bible, you can open to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we'll read verses 8 to 13. It'll be on the screen for you as well if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you. But in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, James writes these words. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy, James says, triumphs over judgment. Now, in every country or kingdom that you might travel to has a particular culture that they embrace and embody. I remember traveling to Russia several years back on a couple of occasions on mission trips. And uh, one of the, we were serving one of the lo- local churches there in Moscow. And a part of the service, we went around and visited widows in their homes to kind of begin to build rapport from our church in America to their church in Russia. And every time we went into someone's home over the course of those couple of days, as we sat with these widows in their small flats there in large, massive apartment buildings, they would bring tea to us every time, hot tea with cubes of sugar that you could dump into the tea, right? And so I must have drank like 800 cups of tea over the course of those couple of days because it's a part of their culture. It's one of those norms that they embody in their hospitality when they receive others into their homes. Every country, every kingdom has a particular culture, and God's kingdom is no different. It's no different. There's a particular culture that is to identify those who belong to this king and are a part of his kingdom. And James says in James chapter 2 that a part of the culture within God's kingdom as it's manifest most explicitly here and now in his church is that God's kingdom is one where there should be no partiality. This should be one of the markers of belonging to this king is that we not show partiality. Now, last week, Pastor Ryan took us through verses 1 to 7 of James chapter 2 and talked a lot about this issue of partiality as it begins to rise and James begins to address it. But James doesn't stop in verse 7 talking about partiality. He goes all the way down through verse 13 as he continues to address this issue, which tells me something that James devotes a significant portion of his letter to this church or to these Christians on this issue of partiality means that it must be something that needs to be addressed and dealt with in the context of God's people. Because this king who has this kingdom says the culture of his kingdom should not be marked by partiality. And yet within our lives and within many churches, our lives and our churches are shot through with it all the time. So you're going, man, another message on partiality, right? I was here last weekend. I heard that. Well, James isn't done with us, okay? James isn't done with us because he's going to develop this even further. So before we jump into what he says, in addition to what we saw last week, I want to give a little bit of recap to what 
Pastor Ryan took us through in verses 1 to 7 last week, kind of give us a working definition of partiality. Pastor Ryan last week said that this word partiality in the Greek New Testament and even in the Old Testament meant to receive a face. In other words, that you receive someone on the basis of these external measurements that you gauge them by. And so what they appear to be or how much money they appear to have or what kind of influence they appear to possess, that you receive someone into your life, you're hospitable to someone based upon external experience, experiences or appearances. And so what we might say partiality is, if you want to get a working definition of it, is this, is partiality is to size people up and treat them differently on the basis of worldly standards. That's what partiality is, is to size people up in your interactions with them and then treat them differently on the basis of worldly standards. Now listen, when I was in middle school, and we've got a few middle schoolers in here. When I was in middle school, I was a scrawny little dude, all right? Now some of you are going, man, that's changed over the years a little bit, right? Putting on a little bit of stuff around the midsection. I went to the doctor the other day, and I stood on the scale, and I started to cry a little bit. <laughs> and so, but I was a scrawny little dude. I was like soaking wet 95 pounds. That was me in middle school. And so every time teams got picked for basketball or for team handball or for flag football, all these massive competitions that kids have in middle school that determine the future trajectory of their lives, right? That's kind of how much weight you put on those things whenever you're in middle school. And so I got picked, guess where? Dead last, right? Because I got sized up every time. And they were like, man, you can't rebound. You can't shoot. So I'm going to pick you last for my basketball team. You're a pretty little dude. You're not going to be able to compete on the team handball court. And so you probably don't have a very strong arm. So I'm going to pick you last for my team handball team. You, you can't run very fast and you can't run very far. And you're not very tall. You don't have a long wingspan to catch passes really high. So I'm going to pick you last for my flag football team. I got sized up Every time in middle school, and I was treated differently on account of it. Now, some of you go, like, have you seen a counselor about that? <laughs> Not yet, okay? I'm still trying to work through that. But the point is, is that we size, I got sized up, and oftentimes that sizing up extended beyond the field of the court because I wasn't able to contribute to their cause. See, I wasn't able to contribute to their cause, and so I got sized up, and I was treated differently even in the classroom not just on the field or on the court. That's what partiality is. It's sizing people up and, and making a determination on whether or not they can benefit us before we determine how we're going to treat them, how we're going to interact with them, what we're going to say to them, whether we're going to help them or how we're going to help them. That's what partiality is. And unfortunately, unfortunately, partiality does not stop whenever we graduate middle school or whenever we graduate high school or whenever we graduate college or when we get our first job or when we have kids or whenever our kids have kids. Partiality is something that is so part of our human nature that it continues to distort and bend us all of our lives. See it in adolescence. Some of you teenagers in here, partiality is such a norm in your school and such a norm in your life. And so you're always looking just to, to relate. How can I relate to the cool kids, right? I just want to be around the cool kids and hang out with the cool kids. Because if I hang out with the cool kids, then my social capital begins to rise in the context of everyone else's eyes. Or perhaps us as adults, right? 
partiality is still such a part of how we think and how we operate. We think we want to hang out with the rich folks. Why? Because they can raise our social capital or they can raise our financial capital. Or we might be partial to someone on the basis of the fact that we think they can satisfy or raise our emotional capital, right? How we feel about ourselves. So I'm going to treat you really well because I like being around you because you make me feel good about myself. I'm not going to treat these people very well because I don't like being around them because they don't make me feel very good about myself. Partiality is sizing people up and then treating them differently, oftentimes on the basis of worldly standards. And I wish I could stand before you today and say that whenever you, God calls you to ministry and he sets you as the pastor of a church, that that's an inoculation that God gives you to keep you from being partial. But I can't stand before you and say that because when I look in the mirror, when I look in the mirror over the course of the last 15 years of ministry in some capacity, I have to confess that there is something within, fundamental within me that still creates a sense of partiality and treating people differently on the basis of whether or not I think they can advance our cause. As a singles pastor for a number of years, when guys walked through the door, when guys walked through the door and they had a good job, they had a good education, they had a high IQ, a significant aptitude, and a good handle on the scriptures, I would pursue them differently than when somebody walked through the door and they hadn't had a good education, they weren't very mature spiritually, and they, weren't, uh, they didn't have much aptitude or intellect about them. Why? Because it's partiality. And I wish I could say as a pastor that at times we don't size people up but in the same way that you do, I do. And so everything that I'm saying to you this morning, I'm holding out a mirror in front of my face. And I, if, if, I could, if, if I could, I probably should, just preach to myself in the bathroom all morning. All right? Because I'm looking in the mirror, and I see this in my life, and I know you see it in yours. That's what partiality is. It's to size people up and treat them differently. Now, some of us go, man, what's the big deal with partiality, right? Why is it such a big issue? Is it really that big of a deal if I only hang out with the cool kids, right? Is it really that big of a deal if I only spend time with people who make me feel good about myself? Is it really that big of a deal if I only spend time with people who might have a little more financial capital than I do so they can raise mine up some? Is it really that big of a deal playing favorites? Is it really as serious as what James seems to indicate in the text as murder or adultery? Is it really that serious? James seems to think it is. Because James comes right out, I mean straight out in verse 9 to say that partiality is a sin. He didn't just say partiality is kind of a character flaw that some people have. He says partiality is a sin. It is an offense against God and it is an offense against other men and women. Horizontally and vertically, it is a sin. Now, how is it that partiality is a sin? How is it that partiality is a sin? And why is it so serious? I want you to notice what James does. He says, listen, if you, if you, if, if you don't commit adultery, right? Isn't that what comparison that he makes here in verses 10 and 11? He says, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you, your defense before God and before the rest of humanity can't be, I didn't cheat on my spouse. No, but you commit, you killed someone. Right? You don't roll into court and go, man, my whole defense strategy of, to beat this murder charge is to stand before the judge and say, but I was a good husband. I was a good wife. I didn't kill anybody. 
Or I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't commit adultery, even though I killed this dude over here. That doesn't fly, because James says if you break one part of the law, you're guilty. You stand guilty before God as having broken all of it. And it's very interesting because James takes this sin of partiality that most of us, when we look in the mirror, we go, That's, we wouldn't classify that as one of the quote-unquote big sins. But notice the two sins that he compares it to. What does he compare it to? Two of the big ones, right? Two of the big ten. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's what he says. That's what he compares partiality to. Which gives us an indication to think that what James has in mind is that the things that we consider to be minor infractions, like class C misdemeanors, and you can just run from the cops all day long, right? This is what Mike Sprong told me earlier. And so you got class C misdemeanors. But James says this partiality is like a massive felony. But how? How? Notice the two sins that James compares it to, particularly the one that he says, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder. What is murder? Murder is violence against another human being's dignity, inherent dignity. And I think it's a part of what James is driving at and why he compares partiality to murder. Because partiality, partiality violates human dignity. It violates human dignity. Murder is a sin that violates the inherent dignity of human life. Why? Because we're created, each of us, no matter what race or class or socioeconomic background, no matter what popularity level or position of influence and power that we might possess in society, every single person that you gaze upon with your eyes, regardless of the physical abilities or disabilities, is created in the image of God. Every man, woman, and child. And to take a life is to violate that inherent dignity that people have as image bearers of God. And James compares partiality with murder because I believe partiality does the exact same thing. It violates the inherent dignity that you and I have, that men and women have, our sons and daughters, our children have as People who are created to bear the image of God. And it leads us, it leads, this partiality is kind of like an undertow. You know what an undertow is? If you go out, wait out into the ocean, you go swim in the ocean, right? On the, on the surface, everything may look nice and great, but underneath there are these currents, and these currents called undertows that will suck you further and further and further and further out into the depths of the ocean. I believe what James is describing in the sin of partiality is like an undertow that will suck us further and further and further and further into the depths of our depravity. Because underneath all kinds of injustices that violate the dignity of human beings and the sanctity of life is this sin of partiality. Consider these things. Partiality treats another person with more grace or less grace, more compassion or less compassion based on their age, their gender, their race, or their ethnicity. And so partiality is underneath, at some level, racial profiling and hate crimes. Because that dude fit a description. That's why I pulled him over. It's underneath 
It's the root, a part of, of, a part of the root of abortions. Because essentially what we're doing is this. Is we're sizing up the value of that unborn child in the womb and saying, my dreams, my plans, my future are more valuable to me than this life that is growing in my womb. So I have a partiality. I'm treating this unborn child differently than I do myself. Partiality is underneath. It's at the root of ethnic cleansings from the Jews in Nazi Germany to the Tutsis in Rwanda to the Bosniaks and Croats, Croats in, under the atrocities of genocide. Uh, essentially this, is underneath all of that is the sizing up of people and treating them differently on the basis of whether or not they can raise our lower, our social, our financial capital, our net worth, how we feel about ourselves. Underneath slavery is the sin of partiality. The slave trade in colonial America, along with the subsequent years of racial tensions that have existed across our country, that emerged from it and carry forward like ripples on, a, on water, even to the day. Underneath that, at one point in human history, was this. Someone sized up another human being created in the image of God on the basis of the color of their skin, and they treated them differently than the, those that they favored because they thought to themselves, we can raise our net worth of economic capital by subjugating this race. We can profit off of these people. It's partiality underneath that. Treating them differently on the basis of what they look like and the color of their skin. Lecrae, in his most recent album, some of you have heard me refer to him before, in a song called Dirty Water, says this. It says, worthless, worthless, 400 years we done heard that. I don't say it quite like he does. My family, he says, came here on slave ships. Some herd cattle, some herd blacks. I know some of y'all done heard that. My kin was treated less than men. That's why we raised to hate each other, because we hate our skin. It's been so ingrained within us over the years. Because at some point in human history, someone said, I am worth more than you, and I can use you to raise my worth based on the color of your skin. It's partiality. Treating people differently on the basis of worldly standards after we've sized them up. Underneath sex trafficking is partiality. Listen, when there are young boys and young girls, younger than some of your sons and daughters who are seated in this room this morning, who are being made promises of a better life for themselves and their families and then being abducted and being brainwashed by having to watch hours of pornographic material so they can perform sex acts on men who will pay, who will pay high dollar. Essentially what's happening is at the, at the root of the human heart, someone is saying, Sizing up these boys and girls and treating them differently as if they were not made image bearers of God. To do all kinds of vile, detest, and perverted things. To satiate the sexual appetites of grown men and women. 
Underneath that is partiality, sizing them up, determining what their value is, and treating them differently in order to raise their financial capital and their net worth. So we go, why is partiality so serious? Why does James devote so much time to it? Why does he compare it to murder and adultery? Because underneath the surface of all kinds of human injustice that violates the inherent dignity of men and women created in the image of God is a sizing them up and treating them differently on the basis of worldly standards in order to raise our financial, social, or emotional net worth. But secondly, here's why I think James devotes time to this. Because partiality is not only a horizontal sin, but like every other sin, it's also a vertical one. Because what partiality does, in essence, is it robs God of, his, of the glory that is due to him. The underneath, underneath all of our partiality, The reason we treat a group of people or a person differently than we would someone else that we might favor based upon these worldly standards is because we want or we need something from them. We need or want emotional well-being from them. We need or want social capital from them and influence with larger pools of people. We need or want financial capital from them. We feel like we need or want something from them that's going to make us whole, that's going to make us better, that's truly going to satisfy the longings and desires of our hearts. And what we are doing in that moment, what we are doing whenever we treat someone differently on the basis of worldly standards after we have sized them up, what we are doing is we're elevating this particular group of people that we are treating perhaps with more favor or more compassion or more kindness or more mercy. We're elevating them to the position of gods in our lives, saying that if I don't stay in the inner circle with all the cool kids, right, then here's what's going to happen to me. I'm not going to be as significant. I'm not going to be as secure. and I'm not going to be as satisfied. We're elevating to a position of God in our lives, and they become idols for us. And so we treat those really well who can, make, who can raise our emotional and financial and social net worth, and we treat those not so well who can't raise our emotional and financial and social self-worth or net worth. These people can make me feel more important about myself. These people don't make me feel very important. These people make me feel really good about myself. These people demand a whole lot from me, and it just kind of drains me. And so I treat these two groups of people differently. And in so doing, we're saying, I've got to have this from these people. And so I'm going to treat them really well and really kind. Because what we've done was we elevated them to a position of God in our life, saying that what I need, what ultimately only God can provide, I need to get from them. It's partiality. It's partiality. It's an assault on the glory of God, on his ability to satisfy, on his ability to keep us secure, on his ability to grant significance to our lives. That's why James goes after partiality the way that he does. So what is the opposite then of partiality? Right? What's the opposite of it? Because most of us in our culture, we would think the opposite of partiality is equality, right? 
We would think that opposite of partiality is equality, and so we treat everyone equal. But James doesn't say the opposite of partiality is equality. What James says is the opposite of partiality is love. Notice what he says at the very beginning of his conversation about this issue of partiality. Look at what he says back in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James's comparison here that he sets up between verses 8 and 9 with that little word, that little conjunction for you English teachers, right? But right there at the beginning of verse 9 is a sets up a contrast between this love that he says is fulfilling the royal law of scripture and the partiality which he says is committing sin. So for James, the polar opposites are partiality and love, not partiality and equality, but partiality and love. And you go, well, isn't love treating everyone equal, the exact same across the board? No, it's not. Let me give you an illustration of that. Here's what I mean. If two people showed up to our church seeking benevolence, wanting, desiring, saying, man, I came upon this really hard situation financially in my life, and we really need help. Okay, well, let's sit down and talk through it on a case-by-case issue, right? So you got one guy who shows up or one family who shows up or one lady who shows up and says, I've been working hard at this job all my life, and I've been devoting hours and hours and hours, and this is what I get paid, and we had this tragedy that took place in our lives, and so bills have escalated and financial debt has mounted, and I'm not sure how we're going to dig out from underneath this. We're in a very hard place. But somebody else shows up and says, Man, I just like to play video games and eat potato chips all day, and I'm having trouble financing that kind of lifestyle. Right? I'm really pretty lazy, don't do a whole lot of work. I'm just trying to kind of get by on whatever I can do, but now I've got this tragedy that took place in my life, and I don't know what to do with that. Right? Because it's cutting into my video game time, my potato chip eating time. Right? Now, if both of those sets of folks come to us as a church and they say, we need help and assistance. If we wrote a $3,000 check to this one family or individual over here and wrote an exact same $3,000 check to this one family or individual over here, that would be equality, but it would not be love. It would be love toward the one. It would be love toward the one who is laboring and working and desiring to, to, to be faithful with the skills that God has given, but it would be enabling the other. That would not be loving. Would not be loving without lots of conversations and without... So we wouldn't just write an equal $3,000 check and say, hey, here we go, man, we're going to pay off that debt. No. James doesn't say the opposite of partiality is equality. He says the opposite of partiality is love. It's love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, James says. Now what James is doing is he's going back to perhaps the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells in the Gospel accounts. Remember that parable? You got this dude that's been beat up and he's down on the side of the road, and there are people who keep passing by him and by him and by him. Right? The religious leaders and the priests don't stop. People who could help and should help don't stop. But finally, someone does. And they're not of the race or the ethnic origin that the individuals who are hearing Jesus' story would expect them to be to stop and help someone of another race or ethnic origin.
And that whole parable gets told by Jesus because someone wanted to know. After Jesus said, here's the, here's the big, my big summary of the law. Love God and love others. Love your neighbors yourself. Somebody said, well, I just want to clarify, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells them the story. And at the end of the story, Jesus flips the question on them, right? Who was a neighbor to that man? Not who is your neighbor, but who was a neighbor to that man? And they have to respond. And so do you and I. Because the ultimate aim of Jesus telling that parable is not to give an out clause for who we should love as our neighbor, but to say, who will you love as a neighbor? Who will you love in a neighborly fashion? Who will you extend yourself for in a neighborly fashion? Who will you lay your life down for in a neighborly fashion? Will you size them up and then go, well, I don't know if they can raise my social capital, so I'm not going to lay my life down for them or serve them. Well, before you pursue a relationship with them, will you go, will they help me achieve my ends and my goals? Before you determine whether or not to pursue them or to seek them out and sit down and get to know them and hear their story. Will you run a cost-benefit analysis of whether or not this person can help you move forward in what you're trying to achieve or accomplish before you determine how you will help them or if you will help them? James says, listen, What Jesus says in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he said, I'm saying to you, if you fulfill this law, that's a part of God's kingdom, his kingdom culture, to love others as you love yourself, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're doing well. But if you are shot through with partiality, where you're constantly sizing people up and then treating them differently based on whether or not they can raise your social, economic, or financial net worth, he says, you are breaking the law as a transgressor. James says the opposite of partiality is love. And the final thing I want us to see what, uh, what James says in here is, is how, do, how do we move beyond this partiality, right? Because I think it's so innate in all of us. How do we move beyond it? There are two things I want to suggest to you. Because some of you are going, man, I'm thinking back over the last week. And I'm realizing I was sizing that dude up. I was sizing that chick up. I was sizing that family up. How do we move beyond it? Two things. One, first of all, you and I, we have to learn to fight our greed for glory. We have to fight our greed for glory because each of us in the room this, this morning, there's this insatiable appetite within our hearts and souls that wants to elevate ourselves and become glorious. To rise in our sense of worth, to rise in our sense of importance, to rise in our sense of significance, to rise in our sense of security and status. Underneath all our partiality is a greed for glory. We want to become more weighty. We want to become more valuable and important in our lives and we think that if we can increase our social or financial net worth then we'll attain that glory that importance that significance and that's what we have to fight at because there's a quest in all of our hearts for our own glory in my heart when I look in the mirror I can see right these knights in my heart who are on a quest 
and they're on a quest, not for a grail or a cup, right, or a Ark of the Covenant, but they're on a quest for glory, self-glory. I want to be important. I want to be valuable. And we're all trying to achieve that through various means. And as a result, we treat those who can help us achieve that quest better than we do those who we esteem not to be able to help us. And if you and I are going to move beyond partiality, we've got to first start with the root cause of it. Which is our own self-importance. We've got to slay that dragon. And the only way to slay that dragon, the only way to fight that greed for glory that exists in all of our hearts is to fight it not with willpower. I'm not going to seek my own glory. 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 You can say that 10,000 times and you're still going to be seeking your own glory. Right? You're going to be seeking your own glory and not seeking your own glory. Right? That makes me feel important and worthy. But what we have to fight this insatiable appetite for our own glory with is the glory of another. If you go back to the text that Pastor Ryan preached out of last week in chapter 2, verse 1, when James addresses his readers, I want you to hear what he says to them. And I don't think it's coincidence or just flowery language that he's utilizing in chapter 2, verse 1. This is what he says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Some of your translations say, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus has a weight and worth and significance all of his own. A beauty all of his own. An awe-inspiring majesty all of his own. And he says, if you've seen it, if you've beheld it, James says, you've got to fight your desire for self-glory with the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to get at that root of all of your partiality. It's to fight your own greed for glory with the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, that's easy for me to say, but it's impossible for us to do because what you and I are dependent upon is God to open our eyes to see that glory. You ever been to the museum, Dallas Museum of Art, and you walk around in there and you see all the paintings and all the sculptures and all the things that, are, that dawn the walls and the halls of that place? Right? You might walk down one particular area where there's a particular type of art or a particular um, genre of paintings, and you go, man, this is just like, I don't find much beauty in that at all. But then you go to the next hall, and you go, that is, what is the word you might use to describe it? Glorious. Glorious. Why? Because you have eyes to see the beauty of one and not the other. And I want so desperately for us as a church to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and to be captivated by his glory so that our quest for glory would be, that dragon in our hearts would be slain. It would be killed. And we would be captivated by Jesus' glory, the Lord of glory, who himself has infinite weight and worth and majesty and awe-inspiring awesomeness. Only if you see that glory, only if you behold that glory and taste that glory, do you have any chance at putting to death partiality in your life. Otherwise, you're going to be seeking your own. 
But secondly, as you behold the glory of Jesus Christ, James tells us this in verses 12 and 13. He says, you've got to so speak and so act in a way that would magnify mercy. You've got to speak and act to magnify mercy. Right? There's little words, so, right before speak and act, or words of man. Or in other words, how are you going to speak? How are you going to act? As those who are being judged by the law of liberty, he says. Now, what does he mean by the law of liberty? I think what James is talking about is the law as it was interpreted by and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you want to sum up all the law and the prophets, here it is. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything that you are, the totality of your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. And so one of the things that Jesus is getting at is he's getting underneath the actions to the motives of why we do what we do. The law of liberty where we will be judged by, doesn't just judge what you do with your hands and what you say with your tongue, but why you said it and why you did it, which emerges from your heart. James says, don't just treat people really well to get something from them because God can see the motive underneath. Don't just say really nice things to people that you need something from emotional capital or relational capital or social capital or financial capital. You don't just say really nice things to those people because you need something from them because God sees underneath and he sees whether or not you're doing that out of love or out of your own pursuit of self-glory. To be judged by the law of liberty, he says, so speak and act in a way because we're going to be judged by that, so speak and act out of love, love for God because you want his glory more than your own and love for your neighbor as yourself. So when you speak, and when you act, you do so, he says, in a way to magnify mercy because those who don't show it, he says, won't receive it. Those who don't show kindness won't receive his kind of flips Jesus' beatitude on its head from Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James says, those who don't show mercy, they're not going to see it. They're not going to receive it. They're not going to taste of it. Because those who have tasted of it, it begins to change the internal structures of our hearts so that when we begin to speak, we're not in it for ourselves. When we begin to act, we're not trying to leverage our own net worth. James says, so speak and act as those who are going to be judged by that law of liberty that sees the motive and not just the action. Do you size people up before you determine if you will speak to them? There might be people who walk through these doors at times in our church and you go, mm, like they're not my same age category. They don't look dressed kind of in the same socioeconomic status that I'm in. And so I'm just going to kind of sit over here and let them go sit over there. Do you size people up before you determine if you will talk to them? Do you size people up before you determine what you will say to them? Whether or not you'll actually pursue a relationship with them or you just be courteous and nice in passing. Do you size people up before you determine if you will help them? In other words, I'll help you if you can help me achieve what I'm trying to achieve. And do you size people up before you determine how you will help them? 
Like, you're more valuable to my cause, so I'm going to help you more than this person who's not as valuable to my cause, so I'm going to help them a little bit less. James says, God knows your motive. And as I stand before you this morning, God knows mine. And that's scary. Because we all fall and fail in many ways as we try and do this. And that's why at the very end of the passage, James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty. For those who don't extend mercy shall not receive it. But then he comes to the end and he says, listen, I know you're going to fall and fail in many ways, but mercy triumphs over judgment. And we're here this morning to sing and celebrate that mercy of God that triumphed over judgment. In a moment after we pray, we're going to receive the Lord's table together. And what God, God is so good. He gave us not only words and sayings, but he gave us a picture of his mercy triumphing over judgment. And at Subin Creek Fellowship, we celebrate that once a month together as a family. As we take of the bread and take of the cup and remember that God's loving kindness to us in Christ has triumphed over all of our failures. So to him be the glory, not to ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, today we come... We thank you for your loving kindness to us that has triumphed over all of our sin and failure. And Father, as we remember that this morning, I pray that it would propel us forward into the world as those who are speaking and acting in ways that would magnify and show forth mercy. The mercy that we've received, we would magnify it in our relations with other men and women. That we would not size people up on the basis of how they can Help us. And so we would treat all kinds of people differently, but rather we would be those who speak and act with no partiality. That that would be our aim and our goal. That we would go to war against that dragon of self-glory that lives in the cave of all of our hearts. And that as he is slain by the glory of Jesus Christ and our minds and hearts being captivated with him, that we would move out. Not sizing people up, but indiscriminately being merciful as you were to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.